Hello and welcome to the Keto Man's Club podcast. We're glad you're here, where each week we talk about men's health and lifestyle. We do so with the foundation of the ketogenic diet and lifestyle. If you don't know what keto is, stick around and you'll find out. Podcast will bring you real honest fun. Each week we strive to uncover the tips and tricks that you can use in your everyday life to maximize your overall health and find the clearest path to becoming the best version of yourself that you were meant to be. This week's episode of the Keto Man's Club podcast is brought to you by the Ballistic Keto MCT Oil Powder. If you've not heard us talk about it before, it's a lightly flavored, naturally derived source of jet fuel without the common gastrointestinal issues that come with MCT oil. They've been around for years with a commitment to quality and consistency. They currently have three great flavors, Mexican Mocha, which I'm drinking today, Salted Caramel, and the new gingerbread cookie flavor. These are for, great for use in coffee or tea, uh, maybe as an addition to keto hot chocolate, or it can be used in your cooking. Whatever you do with it, I know you'll find it a great addition to your keto toolbox. As a Keto Men's Club member and follower, you'll get 10% off your order when you use the, the link in the description and the discount code KNC10 at checkout. We thank Ballista Keto for their support of the Keto Man's Club podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Keto Man's Club podcast. My name is Chris. I'm one of your hosts. And this week I'm joined by... Oh, wait. I'm not joined by Berto or Jim. But who is here? Well, it's... it's I've been on this... Well, it's funny you should say that, Chris, because I've made probably three trips to Texas just to record a podcast from New York State. So it's, it's me. I'm John Oaks. I'm... AKA the mighty Oak in the group. Um, how's it going everybody? So this is, this is fun for me. I'm, um, actually here to see a concert and then eat. I think we're up to a pound of brisket so far just at lunch. So my goal is by the time I leave here on Sunday to consume five pounds of brisket. So I think we're, we're on a good start. I feel good. Let's go. Yep. Yeah. Any anytime that you like you land, you go to your hotel to drop off your stuff and then you go eat brisket, that's a pretty good oh, pretty good start to a that's trip. That's a good start to a vacation. And I brought my wife with me and like she got to experience like Texas brisket, which I've always raved about because let's face it. And the boys in our, our, our Facebook chat will laugh at this. But it's subpar. The brisket, no offense to the people up in Buffalo. <laughs> it's subpar brisket. You lack the salt and pepper. The basic element of good Texas brisket. It's yep. just, it's, it's, you have to bring it. Well, uh, Texas sets the standard in a lot of ways. So, um, yeah, it, it's uh, good stuff. Okay, let's dive in really quickly because we've got a, a guest waiting in the wings and we want to talk with him and this will uh, be a great conversation. But let's, we do have a couple picks of the week. Uh, let's go ahead and start, John, with your pick. All right, so um, I'm going to shout out Jason H. Um, in our main group, and he um, posted yesterday that he's been on vacation from keto long enough, and he's gained a significant amount of weight back, dealing with mental health, um, which is something that I can speak to, um, just life stuff and a job change. Um, he's finally at the point where he's fed up, even though he knows all the things that happen in life, he's uncomfortable again with himself. And so, like, I can relate, man, so here... I'm shouting you out. Here's some support. You know, go get him. He's he's starting from 398, and he's going to kill it. I know he is. Absolutely. I agree. 
And, you know, that's that's an important shout out because we we oftentimes talk about the guys like I'm about to talk about that have lost a whole bunch of weight really quickly or uh, have have done, you know, feats that are that seem to be inhuman uh, to to regain their health. Um, But it's just as important for us to uh, to acknowledge those people that are reaffirming that commitment and digging back in and, and, and locking things into uh, a new um, a new commitment for keto, carnivore, whatever it is that they're locking into. Uh, my shout out is going to Kevin Carter. And he, this is actually post from the end of August. So it's about 15 or 16 days too late. But um, he just kind of buckled down, lost about 20 pounds within about just 25 days. So basically a month he lost 20 pounds and he's wanting to to lose another 20 so that he can be lean and mean in Vegas, which he would have already been there. Um, But he, you know, he's just, he's killing it. He's doing his thing and an awesome job to him as, uh, as all of our guys are killing it because they're all out there. They're doing, they're doing it. They're putting in the work, they're putting in the time and, uh, eaten right and it's it's showing it's showing um let's dive into our guest so we have a a bit of a departure from our normal um our normal type of guest as this is uh, a scientist and a product maker uh daniel and is it shuloff yeah that's right Okay, Daniel Shuloff, and he's the CEO of Keto Natural Pet Foods. And so our conversation, and I'll say it in the podcast, I don't normally name it ahead of time, but today's episode is called Man's Best Friend, because we're all about keto man life, and dogs are men's best friends, and their diet, their nutrition is important too. So that's part of what we're going to talk about. But Daniel, let's start with your story and kind of get the lowdown on your health journey throughout your life and how you found keto and why that's been important for you. Absolutely. Um, well, thanks for having me. First of all, um, it's good to be here. It's always fun to talk about this kind of stuff. And it's really fun for me to like talk keto science stuff to folks who don't know the doggy side of it really, which is ends up being like a big chunk of the community in my humble experience. Um, how I got to where I am right now is essentially I got really invested in the health of my first dog. I, um, I was working as back, this is circa 2010. I was a uh, attorney working in a big law firm, single guy living in a major city, got a dog. He was my best friend and I got very interested. It was my, I was raised, you know, but my mother always had dogs growing up, um, but I'd never had one of my own, uh, got one big male Rottweiler. And he's the kind of dog that like he was alas. Um, that you needed to give daily exercise to. Yeah, I mean, I guess all dogs really enjoy that. And so in a sense, every dog really needs that. But he needed it in order to like exist as a polite member of society. He is, you know, his just personality inv- included like a protective instinct and just destructive tendencies and that kind of stuff. So as a really busy yuppie, basically, I was like trying to exercise him as efficiently as possible. And I started going down the rabbit hole of the scientific evidence surrounding how you do that. And you don't have to go very far down that particular rabbit hole before you uncover some facts around the prevalence of obesity 
among pets in the Western world. And I was um, astounded. I was blown away by some of the facts surrounding that. I couldn't believe how common it was. Essentially, right now, if you pick the next, so I haven't been able to, we're talking in case you're, anyone's just listening when ultimately this airs, we're talking on video chat right now. I can't see y'all's dogs right now, but, and I, I cast no judgment on you as dog owner, of course, but as a statistical matter, it is more likely that your dog is overweight or obese than not right now in America. It is the norm for dogs in America to be overweight or obese. That's fact number one that's just kind of mind-blowing to me. Fact number two is that being just moderately overweight, not colossally obese, but moderately overweight, something that like maybe a lot of pet owners wouldn't even realize the dog is overweight. That's worse for that dog than a lifetime of smoking is for a human being. This like, Basically, they've done lifelong studies and they've looked at how body composition impacts lifespan in dogs. And the answer is it impacts it hugely significantly to the tune of essentially reducing their lifespan by close to 20% which is worse than smoking over the course of one's lifetime tends to do. It's just like blown away by that. I couldn't believe it. And um, the, the, the explanation that you read in, um, if you ask a veterinarian, what your veterinarian will tell you, why is it, how could these things be happening? We all love our dogs so much. You'd think it would be so easy to prevent your dog from becoming overweight. How could this be every dog like, so common? What they'll tell you is, well, here's the thing. Pet owners are screwing up. We're either lazy, we don't exercise, or we are stupid and we don't understand that obesity is bad, or we are loving our pets to death. We are just giving them too much food and treats and more than they need. And so we're killing them as a result of that. That explanation made no sense to me. I did, it did not hold water for me. It seemed implausible that people would fall into one of those buckets and it seemed that there was more to the story. And as a, basically for the next four years, I went deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole. I started writing this book that eventually would take me four years. Um, it's called Dogs, Dog Food and Dogma. Um, I quit my job to work on it full time. I published it in the fall of 2016. And it explains my effort to try to answer this question in a satisfying way. Why are so many dogs in America today overweight? if it's not just because the owners are screwing up. And um, that's how I converted from being a law guy to a doggy, uh, doggy guy. That's awesome. Now, are you yourself ketogenic in your diet and, and lifestyle? Um, so here's what I will say. I have hobbies that are, well, so I guess I didn't, I didn't really complete the explanation, the story. The main theses of the book, what I believe is the explanation for why there's so much obesity um, among pets in the Western world is dietary carbohydrate. Basically, the vast majority of pet food products being sold in the United States today are at least 40% carbohydrate. And there's an unimpeachable body of scientific evidence showing that that is a quality that will make a dog get fat, bar none. And for, uh, the, basically the book outside of developing that thesis tries to explain why you're the vet, the corner store veterinarian, the average garden variety veterinarian doesn't appreciate that evidence. Won't, won't, uh, isn't inclined to give it any weight. So anyway, um, beyond that, what do I do in terms of keto? My, my hobbies are two. I like, I live in Utah and I rock climb 
And then the other thing is I do these long trail races. And so if I'm going through a period where I'm just climbing, climbing is like not a um, long duration physical exercise. It's just like, it's just about like strength to body weight ratio, being lean. When I'm just training for that, it's like I eat very rigorously or strictly keto. I believe that it's efficacious to keep you essentially as lean as possible. But when I'm doing long training runs or in the winter, when I'm skiing in the backcountry, I am basically at a huffing and puffing type pace, a like proper run for too long. And I can't do enough of the things I want to do without, and I, I, I like, I run a ton. And so I end up eating ice cream and stuff like that. And, um, doesn't mean I believe that it's healthy, but I can get away with it without gaining weight because I just am just so active in, in that kind of way. So that's where I'm at. Cool. Um, we, we actually had an episode that will air from the time that we're talking right now, two weeks from now, um, with one of our group members, Jonathan Shane, who is an endurance athlete and he's not doing the ultra marathons, although he's, he signed up for a 50 miler earlier this week. Um, but he, um, he's an endurance athlete, marathons and things like that. And he broke down a very concisely what he has found that works for him, which is key on a lot of this, but he is, um, he is capable to carb refeed to the to the level that he needs to on extra long workouts with a very precise, like I need this many carbs and it's like 20 per hour of extra workout past a certain point. Yeah. And that is, you know, so and he's getting that from natural sources like honey, sweet potato, slow carbs or natural carbs, not the refined sugars, not grains. So it's still no sugar, no carb. It's just more along the lines of, um, you know, resistant starches and things like that, that we can help. And he's also gotten into using some resistant starches like you can uh, that help oh, yes. him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that allow him to to stay ketogenic in his diet, but this resistance starch is he's able to su supplement that, and that helps a lot with his training as well. So, it, what you're doing isn't right or wrong because I don't believe that there's a right or wrong. It's what works best for you. If you found balance when you're in an endurance cycle, you know, eating some some ice cream every now and again, eat some ice cream because it works yeah. for you. Um, you know, for myself, I'm so metabolically unstable still. I'm not to the point where I can do that and mm -hmm. bounce back easily from that. I re I literally regained 20 to 30 pounds in the period of a month and a half after like six months of cutting. And it just, it, it you know, it, that took me, you know, down to my lowest weight. And then I screwed it all up because, well, I'm stupid. Oh, it happens. It yeah. does. Um, and so, you know, that that's, I am not metabolically flexible enough to do that. You obviously are. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, for exactly. You. I don't go around trying to tell people what to eat in their own yeah. diet. I have a weird circumstance kind of, you know, yeah. like my things I like to do are just very active. And so they, like, they sound like it. And that's, yeah. that's great. That's awesome. Um, tell us a, a little bit. Uh, was that true also as you grew up? Uh, no, not really. Honestly, when I was, a ch I think it's a reaction to being like overweight as a child, being kind of like not being um, not feeling proud of my body. Uh, and um, I think that it's somehow fueled a kind of anxiety, a kind of like nervous energy around those types of activities that have this 
getting better, getting better, getting better, fitter type quality about them, I would say. Um, yeah, that's at least my like armchair psycho self psychoanalysis. Sure. Well, I, I think that's a lot of guys. So a lot, a lot of men and women both deal with that where they'll, they'll be like, no, they realize that the way that they grew up was subpar or that there was something that was less than, than good growing up. And they're like, okay, that can't happen. And I have control of my life. I'm going to control it. And that's, that's again, that can be healthy. I, like you said, kind of, you know, if it's rooted in anxiety, that's not necessarily a great thing. But if you can keep it out of the zone of anxiety and be just motivated to stay healthy and be healthy because you want longevity and everything else, that's the way to go. And uh, that's totally, totally fine. That's totally yeah, good. Yeah, that's how I feel about it, too. It's like I, I kind of am a believer that the perfect can be the enemy of the good. And like, if I'm doing, if I don't, I don't mind having little like subclinical anxiety or like eating ice cream, even if it's not perfect for me because I'm yeah. running like that kind of stuff. Like I, I, if I try to get too right, I end up getting it more wrong. You know what yeah. I mean? It's like, uh, uh, I don't know. but yeah. that's, again, it's no, that's, I don't recommend any of that. I just say like, that's kind of how I live my life. For sure. For yeah. sure. And, and we are, um, you know, we're, we're definitely not the type of, uh, group that is like dogmatic not to steal a word from your book oh, title but yeah. uh the dogmatic to to um one methodology or anything we've got a lot of people that are ketogenic that come from all sorts of schools of thought for keto sure. you know people from dr bird dr berry to the carnivore side of things to um you know saladino to you know whoever they learn from um, there's the whole gambit, you know, keto gains would, would be a big one that, that we see a lot of. Um, and, and there is value to all of those viewpoints, which is why we don't say this is right. And this is wrong. We just, the, our test is what is the basic ketogenic macro? Yeah. What, what, what's a basic ketogenic macro? That's all you've got to know to be able to get into our main group. <laughs> and, and here's the thing, like, and, and going back to Chris's point, there's really no, and going back to your story, there's really no one size fit all fits all approach to keto. Like I'm six foot ten, and like I remember six in the beginning, ten? yeah, six foot ten. God. Yeah, and <laughs> so I, I topped the scales at six hundred pounds at one point. Um, what? Yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> so here, here's the thing. Like for me, like I could, and this is kind of where I struggle with. It's like okay, well, I've been the last couple months in a place where like I've been around 2200 2300 calories and I was experiencing physical problems like my foot was given out and like I finally finally bumped myself back up to 2500 2600 and like it's probably still not enough but it's enough to get me by until I get you know physically back to where I was um but there there's really no one size fits all approach to keto and that's over my three three years of doing this lifestyle, that's what I've learned. I've learned that like I've gone from doing keto, you know, to as low carb as possible. To, oh, what's this? Quest peanut butter cups? Let me have some of those. Yeah. And then transitioning to dirty keto, and then realized ah, maybe that's a little too much. I'm gonna go with carnivore. Carnivore is where I found discipline. Discipline. Carnivore is where I'm happy. Carnivore is where I'm planning on staying. And you know, it, it's, it's that approach. And so it's, it's, it's almost like a, you do you lifestyle. 
you know, sure. it's 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 kind of the way to go about it. Um, Not quite if it fits your macros, yeah. But it, it definitely, <laughs> which um, is where I, which you know, you've known me, Chris. That used to be me all yes. the time. Well, Absolutely. if it fit my macros, guess what? I'm gonna go ham on a pint of Rebel. Ooh, Twenty yeah. net carbs. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, and I was the same way early on, and I'm carnivore, and I cheat with keto. That that's my that okay. that's my standard at this point, and that's where I find my happy place. And I am not tracking calorie intake right now, but I'm definitely as long as I eat meat and feel full, I'm usually pretty good. That feels Let's, good. Let's dig. You look uh, awesome. So you guys, you have like a home field advantage when it comes. We to really do. Carnivore diet. You know what I mean? Like if we we just it's not as, as tasty as yeah. <laughs> we we just had uh, barbecue at um, a uh, a barbecue place that's that's in Pflugerville, which is a, a you know a suburb. Like it's not even Austin pro- proper, but is that it's it, it, Pflugerville P F L or P F name of the. The, the no, restaurant. he means the barbecue joint. The, oh, the barbecue yeah. joint is uh, called Brotherton's, and really um, it's really small in place. Most people like this is a this is a local haunt. This is where all of the city officials, the firefighters, the police officers of Pflugerville, that's where they go for lunch because they know that's where the best food is in Pflugerville. And yeah. so most people outside of outside of Pflugerville wouldn't have a clue that this barbecue place is there. Berto introduced you know me to it and then we introduced john to it today and it's fantastic i got way too much i got a pound and a half of meat a pound of brisket and a half pound of uh jalapeno sausage and i brought half of it home with me um yeah yeah, i'll give it to my wife for tonight uh but but it was you know it's just it's fantastic food and you're absolutely right i can pretty much drive 10 minutes for fantastic i can drive five minutes for fair to medium quality barbecue that beats barbecue in almost every other area of the country. Yeah. And yeah. uh, yeah, So we definitely do have a a home field advantage here in Austin to, uh, to that regard. Let's dig a bit uh, more into kind of this, the book, the passion that you have for, for animals and um, what, what you've learned with that. So let's start, there we've already talked statistics regarding that most dogs are at least some form of overweight because of the carb content and the 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 commercially available food is the resolution for that just to cut the carbs or is it more complicated um if you want to take if the if the problem is obesity or over minor obesity you know overweight and the what you want to do is take fat off the dog if you take carbs out of its diet and replace them with protein, you have to restrict considerably fewer calories. Like if you restrict calories in addition, it'll get leaner faster as well. You cannot make a dog fat. You cannot make a dog fat unless you feed it chronic carbohydrate. I've never once in my life, it's a big part of my book, like the kind of whole opening section is me living in Yellowstone National Park with the biologist from the Yellowstone Wolf Project, which is the premier place for the study of wolves in North America. And um, that's really relevant to the issue of what, what's it, what should you do for your dog? Because dogs and wolves are so genetically similar mm-hmm. that they can interbreed. So usually a biologist will tell you that one way to think about the difference, the line between one species and another species is whether they can breed and produce offspring. You know what I mean? Like you can't, a chimpanzee and a, um, I don't know, like a fox 
can't make babies together, but two chimpanzees can. Dogs and wolves are distinct species, but they're so genetically similar that they can, and very often do, breed with one another and make puppies. And the reason that, like, um, th- that, that's relevant to the discussion of what to do with dogs is because gray wolves in places like Yellowstone National Park are still living precisely the same lives they've always led throughout all of their genetic history. And dogs and wolves shared a common genetic lineage for essentially 99.9% of their genetic development. Only in the last like 10,000 years is the kind of number that gets thrown around that they branch out into different places. And over those 10,000 years, big changes have taken place in the two populations. They live very different lives and they're very different um, phenotypically. Like the, the chronic disease prevalence that you see in dogs is not something that you see either in wild wolves or in captivity raised wolves, which is an important distinction. It's like wolves in the wild, as you can imagine, live lives of scarcity and violence, and they don't live necessarily into their ripe old age. But in captivity, that's not the case. Captivity in a zoo setting, you essentially are trying to give the animal as much of its natural lifestyle as possible. And even in those settings, the incidence rate of like cancer, for instance, among gray wolves is less than 10%. Whereas in pet dogs, it's something like 40%. So it's like a hugely different outcome. And so it begs the question, okay, what are the lifestyle differences here that are producing different things? And in the case, one, one very important way they're very different, which is that wolves eat 0.0% carbohydrate and dogs in most cases eat like, you know, depending on what diet you feed it, it very often... If you're feeding it a dry diet, almost certainly it's going to be more than 40% carbohydrate. Um, so if the problem is obesity, basically that one of the solutions you can do it, you can, you know, there are numerous ways to skin the cat, but the easiest one is feed it exactly the same number of calories. It's always eaten and just knock the carbs out of its diet. It will lose the body fat. That study has been done countless times at this point, And that the result is always the same. Like isocaloric studies where they give one group of dogs, give both of them exactly the same number of calories. The only difference is the carbohydrate to protein ratio. Every single time they do it, the dogs that are on the low carb diets end up considerably leaner. So I actually asked one of my vets recently about this because I was curious. um, And she flat out told me that dogs require some level of, of greens in their diet, that type of thing. And I'm like, I didn't want to tell it to her face, but I'm like, yeah, it's, yeah, go ahead. I try to tell the story, you know, part of my, like I said, part of the book is this is what the studies say. And part of the book is the sociological investigative journalistic task of trying to explain why, given that you have outcomes like you just experienced interactions, like you just experienced. And so there are a few take home points. Number one is that vets are, it, it, you know, I know a lot of vets. They're all unquestionably intelligent people, uh, unquestionably. Every single case, in order to get through graduate school in the United States, you've got to be a pretty smart person. However, the subject, the amount of material they're taught about nutrition is minuscule, is problem number one. So there are 28, at the time I wrote my book at least, there are 28 veterinary schools in the United States. In more than half of them, you can graduate without taking any nutrition course whatsoever, period. Not a single course. You don't have to take wow. anything. In the course, in the places where you are required to take it, in almost all cases, it is a two-credit course, 
which if you can think back to your college or grad school days is basically the lightest course load you can take. The material that's used, you caught me without a prop. There are big fat veterinary nutrition textbooks that exist, 700 page compendium type things. That's not what is used to teach garden variety vets about nutrition. What's used to teach, this is just a novel, this is just an example. You're talking about something that's 100 pages that is in most cases a something that the instructor printed. It's not even a book. It's just a outline type thing that the instructor put together. And in that, you not only, I mean, my book, let me give you an example. My book is 400 pages long and it deals with one subject, obesity. That's it. You're talking about a 100 page thing that deals with not just all nutritionally related topics, but all species except for people. It's not, you don't, when you go to veterinary school, you got to learn about all the animals on the ark. You don't just learn about, mine's about dogs and obesity. That's it, 400 page, you know, 100 page bibliography. So it's, it's absurd, the little, how little information. The second problem and the bigger problem is that what information they are taught is influenced tremendously by this, what I call big kibble, the big, old, historically involved pet food companies that have a very vested interest in what veterinarians believe and play a colossal role in shaping what they know. Like I said, there's only 28 veterinary schools in the United States. And these are companies that are as big as any plenty of household brands that, you know, just pick whatever you want at, you know, Starbucks or something. Um, it is not a outsized challenge for them to exert huge influence in 28 places. And so as I kind of catalog in the book, there's just a million ways they do it. And um, the result is what we have now. It's just this place where it's like, you'll get facially ridiculous is the only way to say it perspectives on key 101 level nutrition topics. Like you just heard from your veterinarian. I mean, like to say dogs require carbohydrate is a empirical statement that is zero factual support. And it's, you know, if I was there in the room with the veterinarian, here are some of the things that you could say that would disprove what that person, number one, for 99.9% of that animal's evolution, it ate 0.0% carbs. The idea that any animal over that short a period of its evolutionary history would develop a necessity for something is absurd. Um, secondly, there are in the, in the United States, when you sell pet food, you've got it. The, the nutrition has to meet certain um, like demonstrated meeting of like a whole nutritional framework. You have to provide certain amounts of amino acids, specific amino acids, certain amount of different types of fats, micronutrients, macronutrients. There's a whole big profile. Depends what the life stage is. This a lactating, you know, female dog? Is this a growing puppy? Whatever. And there's it, all nutri nutrients under the sun. There's one thing that's not on that list. Do you want to know what it, <laughs> you want to guess what it is? It's dietary carbohydrate. There is no dietary requirement for carbohydrate among dogs. Um, and there's an, an additional nuance pertaining to grains. And I would, uh, it would take me 30 minutes of monopolizing your microphone to, to explain it, but it's like, uh, it's just, it's absurd. So one, um, question that that just had me think is how much of the fact that wild wolves and things like that have, um, no need for, for carbohydrates, how much of that is related to them? hunting and eating the whole animal, specifically organs. Yeah. Um, well, here's what I will say as pertaining to carbohydrate, 
it's not, you do not need dogs, wolves, whatever, don't have a requirement for exogenous carbohydrate. They do a really good job with gluconeogenesis. Okay. You're feeding them mm. enough protein. They make all the, you know, if you, you can make a dog very ketogenic. They don't produce, it doesn't line up 100% the same as like the factors that influence it with humans, but you can make a dog more or less ketogenic. And if you want to make it really ketogenic, I think you could, it's fair to say that like the, the, the brain stuff that often relies on glucose experiences some level of shifting. But at a, at a baseline state, the animal makes more than enough glucose out of the protein that's already circulating in the bloodstream without any exogenous carbohydrate. So now when you ask about do wolves get exogenous carbohydrate from eating prey, there is probably some amount in the liver, which is a place where glycogen is stored, as I'm sure you guys know, to some yeah. degree. But yeah. this is, relatively speaking, this makes up something less than 1% of the prey, like the, the volume or the mass of the prey. A more, something you hear more often um, that's kind of a common myth um, is you'll hear people say, well, no, wolves do take in a, lot of car a fair amount of carbohydrate because they eat the stomach contents of these plant-focused animals that they kill. So you take down an um, elk. The elk is what's called a ruminant. So it's got this the digestive organ called a rumen, this big fermenting pot. It's just a big, it's like not like your stomach. It's this whole, and, um, and you know, often there's just 50 pounds of plant matter just hanging out in there fermenting. And uh, so it, it has been advanced in some places and kind of become a matter of popular wisdom that like, oh, no, that's where wolves get their carbohydrate from. That's not true. Um, I document the sources in my book and it's something you hear every wolf biologist say that like when you get to a wolf kill, like they eat obscene amounts at a time. That's one thing wolves do. They eat like 10 pounds at each kill right away. So they beat you guys even. Um, but when you <laughs> get to a, a kill that's been picked over for a period of time, like the whole pack has gotten to it and they've moved on. There are two things that are typically left. There are the, the bones of the deceased that the ones that are too big. You know what I mean? Plenty of bones, wolves gnaw on, chew down, get it, get it down. Some, you know, pelvis, big, like thigh bone, too big, can't break it. That's still there. Second thing that's there is the contents of the rumen, the wad of half digested plant material you'll find laying amongst the bones. They will eat the lining around the rumen, but they don't eat the plant matter itself. And the reason they do it is a whole nother justification for why we know they don't make basically one thing and we know about wolves is they don't produce sufficient quantities of salivary amylase. I don't know if you guys know what amyl amylase is a enzyme. Your body makes it. My body makes it. Even your dog, this is like one way that dogs and wolves are different. Your dog's body makes it. And what it is, it's the stuff that if you put a piece of bread in your mouth, God forbid, you put a piece <laughs> of bread in your mouth and you let it sit there for 15 seconds, it'll start to taste sweet. That's because this, this enzyme amylase breaks starch into glucose, basically. So that's it's becoming sugar and your mouth tastes like glucose. Wolves don't produce it. They've done genome studies where they look at the differences between a wolf's genome and a dog's genome. And one of the, most of it's in the brain, but some of it is they, they don't produce amylase. They can't digest starch. So they literally can't eat the stuff. So when somebody says that, they're, um, they're probably wrong. So yeah. as Chris mentioned, I have two dogs at home. So like, I have one dog who's extremely high energy, very active, will chase after everything. And I have one dog who will like, I have, a, I work from home. So he'll literally, you know, sit behind my chair and do nothing all day. And you touch him and like, I've noticed a difference 
because we've recently changed his food to his mood. And I, and, and, and honestly, like I have a brother who I adore who works for Milkbone. So I kind of know, I know the inside baseball stuff of like how that stuff's made. And I know it's like not something I should really feed my dog. And in the grand scheme of things, if I wanted to give my dogs a ketogenic diet or, you know, just a, a protein based diet, what's a good, reasonably cheap way to do so? Well, at the time that I wrote, published my book, which was the fall of 2016, you had two, generally speaking, you had two options. Neither of them were great. If you're somebody that was like, I want to feed as little carbohydrate as possible to my dog, um, what do I do? You could, number one, you could feed the lowest carbohydrate kibble style, dry style product you could find. Mm -hmm. um, the problem with that approach is that the lowest is like 30%, 30% carbohydrate. It's like, you guys are low carb people. You probably, if you know how, like it took a while for low carb, like bread products to kind of, it's hard to bake like a bready thing mm -hmm. without starch. It, the, the dough doesn't want to hold together, you know, without it. It's the same kind of the same concept in making kibble. It's like meaty bread. Like historically kibble's always included starch. Not only is it cheap, it's like part of how you make the stuff. So it's hard to get it to hold together without it. So most brands have always had tons of starch in there. So even the lowest carbohydrate brand, you could find pretty high carb. Um, or you could feed it some version of a raw diet. And in that case, you don't need the starch because you're not baking it. It's raw. So some, not all of them are very low carbohydrate. Some of them are all meat, basically. And in that case, obviously, you're getting a very low carbohydrate content. There are commercially sold products that are that fit that um, mold description um, that are what are what's called complete and balanced, meaning they've been tested to make sure they have all the right micronutrient levels. Um, the only problem with those products, in my eyes, at least, I mean, I've got I showed you guys before I got a St. Bernard and my girlfriend has two other dogs. We have about 300 pounds of dog in our oh. house. And so those things, you know, it's like the difference, in, the difference in price is considerable between the fanciest kibble and the cheapest commercial raw diet. It's like considerable to the tune of like 4X, 5X. So if you have a one little dog, it's like kind of not, it's for many people, it's manageable. It's the difference between, you know, a dollar a day and four or five dollars a day. If you have 300 pounds of dog, it is a very different proposition. You know what I mean? It's a difference between $15 a day and $80 a day, something like that. It's just a non-starter. And it's also because it's raw meat, you have sanitation and preparation and storage issues. So it's kind of not a product for everybody, um, which is why I created Keto Natural Pet Foods, which is a company whose goal is to marry the best of those two qualities together, a truly low carbohydrate content in a kibble form. Our product is called Ketona. We've been selling it for three and a half years. It at the time it, it's the lowest carbohydrate kibble you're going to find anywhere. It's less than five percent digestible carbohydrate, so something like eighty plus percent less than the other fanciest kibbles you're going to find anywhere. Um, so that's naturally I'm rather biased, and I would say for anyone that can't, for whom a raw diet is not the right fit, we're the best choice for that. However. If you can tolerate the some degree of inconvenience and cost associated with preparing raw diets for your dog, I consider an all-meat, commercially prepared, which is to say complete and balanced, containing all the micronutrients it needs, raw diet to be the gold standard. That's what I think. Like basically, if you can get away with that 
you can deal with that as a matter of preparation and stuff. That's the closest thing to natural that there is for a dog. Um, and so there, but you know, you can, if you want to try to make it yourself, there are ways to go about doing that using butcher bought meat products. Um, you, the biggest concern there is being mindful about the micronutrient things like the fact that some organ meats contain very different micronutrient contents than plenty of skeletal muscle tissue does. And so there are kind of like reading resources and veterinarians you can speak to who can help you with that process. But um, generally speaking, those are the buckets. And I think going back to your earlier point, how you you talked about like how we kind of like make our dogs to make them happy. We just give them whatever. Like I had one lab I got from a coworker back in 2011 and he was five years old at the time. He was way overweight. And what his story was, was um, my coworker was pregnant. So she had to like, she had to find a home for him. He spent a lot of time outside. He was a great dog. But the neighbor would come over and just feed him pasta and like feed him like, so like he was, and, and a lot of this, I think a lot of like what the, the problem that we have as a society is like, we don't really know how to handle our dogs behaviorally. So we throw treats at them to kind of get them to settle down. I was just out of town for three weeks. My girlfriend and I went to Europe for a summer vacation. My mother is kind enough to stay here and watch our dogs in our house while I was gone. And wouldn't she believe it when grandma was in the house for a period of time, I came back to a, a girthier than usual St. Bernard. Let me, you know what I mean? And so there's a certain degree of like, I think that, that what you're describing where you're like, if you're not with the animal every day and kind of understanding its health, like trying to do what's best for it, like you would for a child and you're just there to pop in and spoil it. It's easier to make those, to use that kind of thing as a reward. And I think going back to your other point too, like, you know, when I cook at home, like if I'm trimming a brisket, my dogs, I mean, dogs crave meat. That's what they're, that's just like, so like give them, give them like, you know, slabs of like, brisket fat and they're happy you know it's just you know so it's like you know i i think we've kind of gotten away and of course this is where i and i'm gonna go off on a mild tangent i think we're kind of guilty as a society of going for the easy thing you know so of course it's oh well this dog food is cheap you know and i can get it at you know you know joe schmo box store you know, and not really pay attention to it. And all that really matters is if the dog is gassy or not, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, and that's what it comes down to. That's what most dog owners come down to. They don't pay attention to the science. And there's, it's like, what do you perceive to be a problem? You know what I mean? If you're viewing it through the lens of my day-to-day experience with my dog seems okay, you know, then you don't have a problem to solve. If you recognize long-term chronic disease outcomes and risk like that, and you're trying to keep your, you know, it's like the, my book is like the emotional core of it is like, it is a underappreciated tragedy, not just a sad thing, but a tragedy that all dogs, you love them because you have the hard wiring to bond with your kids, right? Like that's, you wouldn't love it. If you didn't have a, a, a child bonding quality to your psychology, you wouldn't care. The dog wouldn't feel any different, but you do. And so it does. It's jacking that, that most primal kind of love where like, 
there's no bigger tragedy that we're aware of than like a person's child dying before the parent. But every dog, every it's baked into the experience that that's going to happen. And it's, you know, that's the emotional. It's so anyway, yeah, if you view it from that perspective, there's a problem you can solve, you know, minimizing the, the disease risk. Yeah. And going through like the dogs I've owned and like the the dogs that we have now, they're relatively young. So like now we're kind of paying attention to, you know, my one dog who is, you know, going to be three next year is relatively overweight and he's the inactive one. So like, okay, well we gave him healthy weight. And then my wife all of a sudden says, Oh, he doesn't look so pudgy now. Let's switch him to the regular dog food. And then next thing you know, he's sitting behind you and it's like death by a thousand dog farts. It's like, it's not really good for him. And it's just like, you know, it's, it's like time to rethink things a little bit, you know, because I, I love the two dogs that I have, like are the best dogs that I've had. And like I, the best combo of dogs I've had. Um, and I can honestly say that I would rather like make sure I do what I can to keep them around. I know that I can't prevent any other illness or anything like that. But like if the end game is to make sure that they're healthy as possible, then I need to do what I need to do. Yeah. There's a lot you can't control. There's a lot you can't control, but uh, there's a huge thing that you can control and it's very impactful. It's like a lifetime of smoking. And so here, here's a little tidbit that's um, that you might want to mention to your, to your wife. One big thesis. I, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry. That, that came out. It's not like I don't presume to know if your household works anything like mine, that's probably not going to happen. But anyway, <laughs> there, here's the thesis and it's very well supported in the evidence. There's really no such thing as a dog that is too lean. That really, when you look at the evidence, the leaner the animal is, as long as the muscle mass isn't being, as in starting to erode, the leaner, the better. There's not, it's not like a lot of the mainstream belief is that it's that body comp, the relationship between body composition and health is like a U-shaped curve where the optimality is at the bottom. That's not what the evidence says. The evidence says is that it's an upward sloping line that like the leaner your dog is, the lower it's chronic disease risk. So take that to the bank that like, it, it's not really uh well, he lost, he got down. Now he's too lean. Let's fatten him back up again. That's not, that's not a good strategy. Yeah. In that regard, do we notice or see that biologically that dogs have a called a safety valve or something that keeps them from getting underfed or like, because that's, I think that that would be the main concern that the general public would have is, well, what if I'm not feeding them enough calories and they're nutrient deficient or that type of thing? Uh, well, as far as nutrient deficiency goes, that's kind of the issue I was talking about before with like, with, if you're buying a commercially prepared pet food, then, and it's what's called a complete and balanced food, which is the vast majority of food products being sold, then you can feel good about that. And that includes everything protein, you know, the amount of protein that the animal needs, I, you know, I am of the belief that what's optimal in some of those cases, particularly in the case of protein is not the, the threshold that where you need to clear that in order to be considered complete. Um, but that said, if you feed a product like that, you, you shouldn't have to worry about that unless you're feeding far less than the manufacturer is recommending. However, dogs do have a mechanism to deal with they have body fat. That's like, that's the main role of it. It's like the, like I said before, the thing, the reason that a wolf eats 10 pounds of meat when it sits down to eat a meal, and that's not, that's not an exaggeration. 
the reason that's a thing is because they don't eat for seven days after that. They, they go a long time between kills. And during that period of time, they are essentially living off of stored body fat for energy. And that's it, you know? And so your dog, there's plenty of studies. Like there's, um, I don't know, I can tell you all kinds of stuff. They have these treadmill studies where they take a beagle and they fast it for 20 days and then they make it run 20 miles and it does just fine. My wife might debunk you on that with my one dog, Cypher, but yeah. Like. <laughs> no, no, he's really active, but like even like the food that he's eating, he'll still like be hungry and pining for food. Yeah, I mean, it's pining for food and hungry. I don't know if those are the same thing. So if we think Neolithically, which, you know, is all a little bit pseudoscience, but, you know, if we think about what things were like a few thousand years ago, humans were actually really much the same. We were fat, feast or famine. We were hunt, kill, get the animal, eat and do everything we can to eat what we had because preservation ability was technologically uh, not as advanced as where we are now. And so you had these big swings between feast, then hunt, which was, you know, sprinting after a thing or you know, whatever, but you'd go long periods of time, week or two at a time, potentially, without eating a significant amount of food. And then you'd feast again. And it was this feast and famine, feast and famine, feast and famine thing. Animals are the same way, just like you're saying with these wolves and, and, and with, with, you know, peop these animals that are in nature. If, you know, they are eating a whole bunch of food in a short period of time, but that's where, you know, and what, whatever's not used, their body puts into fat so it can be used over the period of time until their next kill, whenever that may be. And it's like, and the, the, I'm with you on basically all, you know, it's like the, the notion that it's kind of pseudoscientific to try to reconstruct, to try to put ourselves back 2000 years and try to figure that out. Yeah. There's, there are challenges around that. It doesn't mean that the principle of trying to eat the way you've evolved to eat is wrong. It means it's just hard to figure in the world of dogs and wolves. You don't have to do that exercise. Mm -hmm. They're still, you no. can look at them today, tomorrow morning, you buy a flight out to Jackson, Wyoming and you drive up to Yellowstone national park and you can look at it yourself. And that's, you know, it's like 10 pounds. Try to, one of you guys try to eat 10 pounds of meat. Okay. And these, <laughs> um, this wolf is like 600 see, pounds. What? What's that? Your, your most at one time was three? Yeah, three. Yeah. I, I, okay. Right. And I'm talking about not like this. I'm not quoting you the Guinness World Record most of wolf's ever eaten. This is like what is a garden variety wolf meal. And it just gives you a sense of how long, like what that, how much is going in there. You know, that's there's a long time before that's taking place again. Mm. So it's yeah. I can argue that the co-host of this show, uh, Alberto, could probably eat about seven, but <laughs> be impressed. Yeah, he he, uh, he he's he he's one of the the measuring sticks that we all try to live yes. up to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So let's. Uh, we want to be respectful of your time. We're we're hitting about fifty minutes right now, so uh, we want to make sure that we uh, we don't take up too much of your day. Um, what, so are there any other specific things that people need to know about this, uh, that we haven't covered so far, um, that, that really need to, to be really at the forefront of our minds as we're thinking about providing for our pet friends. And I know your dog and, and your studies aren't surrounded by, or aren't centered around cats, but is any of this transferable yeah. into the feline world? 
yeah. So the, the metabolic nuts and bolts of, um, you know, carbohydrate goes in, becomes glucose, gets absorbed as glucose. Insulin is what's used to deal with it. All that holds exactly the same dogs, very much the same dogs, cats, human beings, um, with regard, I mean, a, a cat, the case that a cat should be fed an all meat diet is stronger even than the case that a dog ought to be. A do- dogs, we at least know, have evolved the ability to like, it's, lo- it's often said that cats are what are called obligate carnivores, whereas a dog is what's called a facultative carnivore. Um, and what that means is in some folks' eyes, is an imprecise uh, classification, but in some folks' eyes, you cannot keep a cat from developing a disease of deficiency without feeding it some amount of meat. And that you can, you can keep a dog, if you structure a diet just right, supplement it just right, you can allow an, a dog, a dog will stay alive even with zero meat in its diet, whereas a cat won't. There's not enough of the amino acid taurine. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's very much as strong. The obesity case, unfortunately, is just as, as persuasive, uh, as pervasive for the obesity problem, just as pervasive among cats in the United States as dogs. So it's like, you know, basically a one and two type problem. And cats even provide a pretty interesting, like demonstration that it, this is not a, a question of us being lazy and not exercising the animal enough because cats don't have this kind of take it for a walk, play a game of fetch targeted exercise type thing. And we're still somehow 50, you know, it's 50% of them are obese. Um, so yeah, it, it all very much holds true. Gary Tobbs is somebody that I worked with for a good chunk of the book. Gary's a, do- a cat guy and he's got all kinds of stories about his cat gaining and losing body fat as a result of how much carbohydrates in its diet. And it's even, Oh, oh sorry. Let me make one more point it, with cats. You have just like there are folks like the Verda health, uh, folks, who are who will, can say and factually defend the fact that they can put diabetes into remission, cure diabetes with a zero carbohydrate diet. There's there are veterinarians who can do the same thing on cats. Dogs diabetes works a little bit different, but basically you can put a cat into full diabetic remission if you take put it on a zero carbohydrate diet. Awesome. So that's my. I'm not. I don't have any cats. I like them, yeah. but I don't have any. So, I have four, <laughs> so I, I can vouch for the. <laughs> He's got four. I've got two. Uh, so yeah, it's, uh, yeah, we've got, we both have full houses. Um, so yeah, it's, I, I, I did have one last question about dogs because this is something that I've seen probably my whole life. And I think if I were to spitball a guess, which you can confirm, um, that the reason for this is largely because of the type of diet that they're getting with kibble or, or, you know, and that type of thing. Why do dogs eat grass? Um, I don't know. Okay. I don't know. Here's a, you'll, you'll hear explanations and they always feel to me at least mm-hmm. a little bit half hearted and not, and not like fully baked scientific theories. I think so, that the yeah. basically the best guess to me seems to be that it's something that like is in response to a feeling of digestive upset. Mm-hmm. That there's some there's some yeah. kind of like put more stuff in their reaction to yeah. like try to quell that. Um, but that's just the best that I've ever heard. I, I don't think the world of pet food and, and veterinary nutrition is 
really heavy on people making definitive claims about what's going on inside the mind of animals. And it's just like, okay, take it, pump the brakes a little bit on that. But it's just like, yeah, that that's the type of issue that's very hard for me to try to, uh, yeah, for me to, I don't know. That's a fair answer. And, and honestly, I've heard exactly the same thing that their stomach's upset. They're eating the grass because that's going to cause them to help purge whatever it is that's in their stomach. That's going to, to and I've seen it. I've literally I've seen, seen it too. with exactly. my dog. I've seen it too. I don't so, know the mechanism exactly or the mm-hmm. kind of evolved theory, but like, yeah, that's, that is a behavior that I've seen plenty of times. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm, I'm right there with you on that. I, uh, I think that, you know, and, and, you know, there are people that would use something like that as an argument that, oh, well, dogs do need carbs. And no, I would agree that, that it's, it's actually a, a self-medication for themselves. It's not nutrition and, and, and that type of thing. I, yeah. It's well, just like, that is the kind of thing that passes for a, um, a, one of the better arguments in favor of feeding a dog carb. You know, like that's the state of the world these days yeah. is like, there's so many folks with degrees who say things like what your veterinarian said to you that are just shockingly shockingly poorly reasoned mm-hmm. that that kind of thing at least like passes something of a plausibility test. And yeah. It's just like, that's where we're at right now. So, I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that could be applied as a whole to modern medicine that like, they're not willing to look at alternative lifestyles because like, I agree. everyone needs carbs. It's like, you know, it's, it's like one of those things where it's like, you know, where my doctor told me about keto, told me to do keto. When I told her I was doing carnivore, she looked at my blood work after four months and ran my numbers in the little website that she has. And she's like, you know what? You have a 3% chance of, of a heart attack over 10 years and you've lost 60 pounds. Go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. You know? So it's like, it's just worse in the, what I would say, I totally agree with that. But like, I went to, I don't know if you guys were, there's like OSU, at least before COVID would put on this keto, like continuing medical education conference every year, Ohio state would, and, and it's standing room only in a ballroom, you know, like a big area doctor. If you try to do that in the veterinary community, you couldn't fill a closet. You know what I mean? Like there's just, it's just so much more, it's a smaller, more insular community and it's more effectively shaped by corporate interests. There's less money in the research side of it, much less. And it all comes Basically, all the money for research science in the doggy world comes from pet food companies. Full stop is basically what you can say. And you can imagine those guys, you know, cigarette companies don't put out papers that say cigarettes cause cancer. And so it's just very heavily influenced. Yeah, um, I can definitely see that there would be similarities between Big Kibble and Big Pharma. Uh, That's for sure. So how can people connect with you, uh, find your stuff online and everything else like that? Yeah, so um, the products uh, made by the company that I founded, um, again, is Keto Natural Pet Foods. And if you go to ketonaturalpetfoods.com, that's the best place to get it. We've got handy little widgets that tell you exactly how much to feed your dog. And we have a coupon code, PODCAST20, P-O-D-C-A-S-T-2-0, no spaces. It will uh, entitle the user to 20% off their first order. Um, that's where you can find the product. You can also find it on third-party retailers like Amazon. Um, if you want to find stuff that I have written, I would encourage you to check out a copy of the book where uh, you can find that is basically through anywhere books are sold, but primarily through Amazon-related properties. 
And I also, if you follow me, Daniel Shuloff, at Daniel Shuloff on social media, on Twitter, or anything like that, I can keep you up to date with shorter form writing, which I do um, fairly regularly as well on kind of modern contemporary pet food topics. Okay. And you're only on Twitter? No, I'm on all. I mean, you can find me on all of them, but that's where I, that's my bread and butter. We'll link the, all of that up in the show notes so that our uh, listeners can uh, check it out because we, we certainly want them to, to be able to connect with you and ask any questions that they might have. Yeah, and- I like questions. I, I, I try to do a really good job of being responsive to that kind of stuff because when I was doing research for my book, a lot of people were very helpful for me in that same kind of way. And I've got a really small but deep pool of knowledge in a specific area. So I can, I'm happy to help. Very cool. Um, one last question for John, John, because I don't have you linked on our website yet. Sorry. Uh, how can people connect with you online? <laughs> okay. So I am easy. I'm John W Oaks on Facebook. Um, or you can find me in the keto man's club, um, on Instagram. Although I don't really post much on Instagram cause I've been kind of zero dark 30 with my foot issues. Um, it's the mighty Oak seven, seven, uh, same thing for Twitter, the Mighty Oak Seven Seven. So yeah, yeah. To to our listeners that maybe heard the snoring just now, my dog is laying behind us and he's <laughs> snoring. I was telling uh, John and his wife a, a few minutes ago, he's louder in his sleep than he is awake most times, like throughout his life. And he'll he'll yeah, and he no, he's still doing it. <laughs> he's still snoring. Yeah, I think there's the guest. The guest wants to put him to sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, also, well, John, if I, you're going to a concert tonight, I'm going you, to a concert tomorrow. Oh, okay. So, um, yeah, six foot ten. You're allowed to go to a. Con- you got to sit down, right? So, like, no. Not, funny like, story. So, and I don't know if Chris will mind me sharing this, but I'm a huge fan of uh, the band Alter Bridge, and uh, the band Alter Bridge is basically three fourths of the band Creed and Mark Tremonti, who is a phenomenal guitarist. Um, so he played Rochester. Uh, I live outside Buffalo, so um, he played in Rochester on Wednesday night. I literally stood on the rail for four hours watching him, watching the concert. It was him and Seven Dust, which was phenomenal. So I, I do I do this thing in the beginning of a concert, you know, where people are lined up behind me. I'll be like, look, I'm sorry. I can't help it. I'm tall. I can't help it. You're short. Get over it. Move on. <laughs> so Okay. Yeah, yeah, it, um, yeah. It, it, it's it's a production for him to go to a, to a show because he get he usually gets VIP tickets to try to meet the band and spend time with them ahead of the time and all that stuff. It's it's he's got lots of pictures with them and, and it's it's really cool that to, that he gets to do that. Um, okay, well, let's go ahead and close this up. Thank you again, Daniel, for joining us. We yes. really appreciate your your expertise and your wisdom. Um, sometimes when we have um, products uh, and or product representatives on our show, it's it's all sales. And I really appreciate that you did mention your product. We wanted you to mention your product, but you were here to give value to our audience, and that is highly valuable to us. And so we Good. appreciate that greatly. Um, yeah. So for our listeners, for John and for Daniel, thanks for listening. Until next week, make sure to eat meat, lift heavy, sleep, and repeat.